welcome to the second part of the podcast on the world of IoT and its future. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Chow, lecturer at Stanford University. So stay tuned. So I think, um, so one thing that, that I want to talk to you about is, so Cisco recently released a survey result that said three-fourths of all IoT projects are failing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually thought this was interesting that they released this report and I it uh, they, they went further uh, with this. If you go read the report and if you're interested in the area, uh, they, they go further and they say, well, part of the problem is a lack of interest with leaders failing to buy into IoT. And um, the Cisco CEO said, well, we need to build an IoT architecture uh, that allows you to go beyond, right, the 26% or 25% of people mm -hmm. that have adopted. So he, he's basically making an argument that this is a technology failing. And um, I, I, my point of view is this is not a technology issue, right? Um, mm. This is really a business model issue, right? And I'm going to particularly focus the conversation on the enterprises that make machines, right? Make tractors, make wind turbines, make uh, make blood analyzers, right? Make forklifts. Um, and, you know, for those guys, they've largely been focused on the world of selling you a box, selling you a product, selling you, I like to say, selling you horsepower and torque. Mm. And um, I think without them understanding that there is a new business model in front of them, there's no, they're not going to invest, right? They're, it's going to just be a lot of fun that some IT guy got to have in connecting these or applying some machine learning. They're, they're not going to really go to deployment. And I like to start that, those guys, the guys that make machines with fundamentally having them realize that their machines are increasingly hunks of software. And the example mm. that I use, which is coming out, I don't do a lot of stuff in consumer, but the automobile world is kind of sitting in the in between. If you look at the 2016 Porsche Panamera, it had 2 million lines of code in it. The 2017 has 100 million lines of software in it, right? Uh, it's not just the world of cars, right? Uh, the latest tractors have 4 million lines of code in it. The latest combine harvesters have... 5 million lines of code in it. Drug infusion pumps are, I'll say, getting into the 200,000 lines. The MRI scanners are probably already way beyond 7 million lines of code, right? And the ability, I think, which we already see if you go open up a Tesla is the ability to change your product, build new features, et cetera, which software lets you do, just, just begs that you put more software, you define your machine by more software all the time. So when I spend time with those guys, I say, if software-defined machines are the future, then what can you learn from, I'll call it my world, which is the software world. What, what, were the, what are the software business models and how can these be used to generate more revenue and more margin for your business? So let me take you through what are the software business models. So they fundamentally have been three. The first is we say, oh, I'm going to sell you a product, and you know, ERP, middleware, databases, whatever, uh, and a disconnected service. That's model one. 
Model two is I will connect to your machine and I will provide you assisted services. I'll help you with managing the availability or security of your ERP, your CRM, your whatever. And finally, right, if I can help you do that, if I can assist you in doing that, then I can do it for you, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you know of as software as a service, or what I'm gonna call like delivering your product as a service, whether that's Salesforce or Workday or NetSuite, et cetera, right? That's really the culmination of what I term model three. Uh, and by the way, when I move to model three, I can completely change my pricing model. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So let's just dive a little deeper into this. If you look at Model 1, and I, I tell people, if you're not a student of Oracle, although this is representative of all the existing ER, uh, enterprise software companies, what you realize is that the dominance revenue in those companies is service revenue. In the year before Oracle bought Sun, so this is a purely a software company, it did 15 billion in revenue. Three billion was selling you a new product, a database, a CRM, a middleware, whatever. 12 billion was service revenue, right? 12 billion mm. was service revenue. 80% was service revenue. And by the way, that's recurring revenue. You get it every year. It has a very low cost of sales because I already know who the customer is, right? Mm -hmm. And the margins are north of 90%. Mm. Why are the margins so high? Well, it fundamentally, and people need to understand this, service, and I think a, a lot of people think service is about break fix, right? Mm. We actually did an analysis at Oracle now, this is about 2003, we analyzed 100 million service transactions coming in, whether that was, you know, uh, you know, on the phone and, uh, you know, on the internet, et cetera. 99.9% .9 was answered with known information. This is not break fix, right? Mm. So what is that information? I say fundamentally, it's information about how to maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of the product, right? It's information about how to maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of the product. That is what is service. Service is the delivery of information, right? And it, once you understand that, right, then you go, well, if I can now connect to the machine, well, I can make my service even more personal and more relevant because I know what, you know, uh, version number you're on. So I can tell you exactly what patch. I know what kind of disk you're running, so I can tell you how to optimize, you know, your cache hits, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So I can make my service even more personal and more relevant and telling you how to manage the performance, availability, or security of your product. And then, as I said, ultimately, if I can do that, then I'll just do it for you. And that is what we have seen as product as a service. And by the way, when I get to that business model, I can shift. It's no longer product plus a service. I mm. shift to, right, per uh, seat, right, per transaction, or as we've already seen in the world of hardware, per instance pricing, mm. right? Okay, 
So that's a little short tutorial on what software product business models are like. Let's now bring in the world of hardware or into the world of things. So uh, I always say to people, well, why is it you should wonder, why does GE care about this, right? Why do they like to talk about the industrial internet, right? And I go, it's really easy. If you go pick up their 10K, their financial statement, you'll see it right away. They operate today in a 50-50 model. 50% of their revenue is product, selling you a jet engine, an MRI scanner, a locomotive, whatever, right? 50% is service, disconnected mm. service, by the way, on that jet engine, right, MRI scanner, et cetera. And furthermore, they sign multi-year contracts for delivering that service, and so they actually report that, and you know, last year I was $250 billion in revenue. Now, if you think about it, if I can make my service more about information delivery and not human labor, well, my margins go mm -hmm. up. And by mm -hmm. the way, if I can move to an 80-20 model, not a 50-50 model, I just added how many billions of dollars worth of revenue to my business, which is recurring and high margin business, right? Uh, just to not make it about, gee, there is a European manufacturer of elevators. They operate in a 50-50 model today. 50% of the revenue is selling you an elevator, 50% is service on that elevator, recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. 2008, uh, you know, we all know there was an economic downturn. And so their revenues went down, but their margins went up. And mm -hmm. why? Because, and mo most guys who make machines know this, their product margins suck, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're increasingly being commoditized. Mm -hmm. Yes, in this case, their product margins suck, but their service margins don't. Mm. So even mm. though their revenues went down, right, the corporate margins went up. So I say to these guys, look, why don't you build, and this is now bringing up business model two, why don't you connect to those machines that you have out there and now combine the information and knowledge you have about those machines in your IT systems. By the way, you know, your call tracking systems, et cetera, contain a lot of information about what is going on in the customer, combined with the machine data out there, the sensor data out there, and deliver to the customer, right, the ability to improve, uh, optimize, maintain the performance, availability, and security of that machine, right? Combining the so-called IT data and OT data to deliver a connected service. This is not about break-fix. I, mm -hmm. I, I'll tell you, I, uh, this was probably uh, late last year, I met the uh, CEO of a large uh, semiconductor machine-making company that make wire bonding equipment. Uh, I said, well, how many machines do you have in the field? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. He goes, oh, we have 50,000 machines in the field. I go, wow. I said, uh, how much service revenue do you generate? And he goes, zero. <laughs> I go, I can guess why it's zero. <laughs> It's because you tell everybody services break fix. And the mm. guy just spent a quarter million dollars on the machine and goes, well, I hope it doesn't break. <laughs> <laughs> right? you, you 
are not going in there and mm. selling them that they you have the information on how to maintain or optimize the performance, mm. availability, or security of those machines. And by the way, and I did this as a back of the envelope exercise, I tell guys who make machines, I know how to double your revenues and quadruple your margins. Mm. And because, and I, you know, this is a simple case study, if they have 4,000 machines in the field, so that's not a mm. whole lot of machines. If the list price of those machines, the selling price of those machines is $150,000, a lot of machines are way over $150,000. And let's just make an assumption that they sell just 500 new machines a year. Then what that implies is that in the current model, which they sell no service, they will generate $75 million in product revenue. True this year and oh by the way next year they have to go find another yeah. <laughs> four thousand machines to sell right and i look at them and i go guys look if you just and I, remember i made the point or may i didn't make the point earlier in the oracle model we charge people in effect for the disconnected service two percent of the product price per year two percent right hmm. for that information if I only charge you, and I just did this 1% per month, right? Because I know it's new and they're not used to doing this. I go, look, and, and you go after your installed base, you could now generate a service business, which is equivalent to your product business, mm. which is much mm. higher margin, recurring, every year you get it, recurring revenue with a lot lower cost of sales if they were to go build you know service products digital service products not break fix products i i think that opportunity is in front of them every last one of them to go do this it's an incremental revenue on where they are today but i will tell you there's even something more important which is if you could build this business by the way what do you know i now know how to manage the performance availability and security of these machines to optimize them, to improve, right? The availability of them, et cetera. If I know how to do that, then I go, well, what's the next step? Well, it's, I'll do it for you. Tell you mm -hmm. a quick story here. Uh, there's a company out there called New York Airbrake. New York Airbrake uh, builds an application that connects to locomotives. They uh, connect to it. They collect data from it. They learn on it. They provide assistance to the train operator, when to speed up, when to slow down, right? Save fuel costs. They actually save $6 million a year for Nor Norfolk Southern. But, you know, again, if you can tell the guy what to do, well, you can do it for them. And mm. this year, they're going to run an autonomous train from the north of Australia down to Perth, right? Dragging iron ore, which wow. clearly dovetails you into business model three, which mm. is delivering the product as a service. I look at people, I go, well, let's, let's talk about the machine called a car. If I was mm -hmm. going to deliver a car as a service, well, what would my pricing model be? Mm -hmm. Well, it would be, you know, per ride, right? It's obvious mm -hmm. it would be per ride pricing, right? Mm -hmm. I go, well, we already know guys doing that, right? They're called Lyft mm -hmm. and, and Uber, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I point out to people, what is the most expensive thing in that ride? It is not the sheet metal. It is not the gasoline. <laughs> it's the human, right? Mm. 
By the way, the most expensive thing in delivering software as a service is the if you use humans will be the labor in managing the availability, performance, and security of the product. Right? If I'm do doing this with hardware, the most expensive thing is the human labor to manage the performance, availability, and security of the server. It, I will spend a lot of money automating the management of the performance, availability, and security. That's what you see inside every SaaS company, inside every deliverer of compute as a service, storage as a service, is I will automate the hell out of that. Yes, why automation is interesting in the car right. business. It's the same thing. I'm going to take the complete cost structure of the most expensive thing out of it. And by the way, at that point, what am I going to end up with? Well, why would I ever own a car? There's no reason to own a car. <laughs> right? Mm. So this is why it's hugely disruptive in the automobile industry and why, you know, you're seeing people attacking this from, you know, from Lyft, from Uber, from Google, from Ford, from Toyota, et cetera, because this is hugely transformational from an economic point of view. And the move to product as a service, which we've already seen revolutionize the tech business, as I said, it's headed into the car business. So all you guys out there who are building, you know, forklifts, blood analyzers, right, combine harvesters, compressors, et cetera, you know, I can tell you what the future looks like. You're already seeing it. So um, mm. I, I think it's not the, the future success of IoT with, and I think the key player are the guys that make machines, make agriculture, make construction, make power, make mining machines, that they move to three business models, start with product plus a disconnected service, connect it and provide more service, deliver the digital service product as a product with a sales force, a marketing group, et cetera, selling it and drive incremental recurring revenue, you will build all the technology necessary to deliver finally your product as a service. I don't counsel them to jump the product as a service because I, I know all the complications with doing that from your channel's point of view, your mm. sales point of view, and they'll stop themselves if they try to go too far. If they just build model one and two, they will be technologically positioned to deliver model three um, quite rapidly. So I, I think that's the key right now to more success in the world of IoT is we got to get the guys who make machines to understand uh, there's a huge revenue opportunity an ability to, to like I say, double their revenues, quadruple their margins by delivering digital service products. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Um, okay. So let's let's talk about um, we'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Like which businesses would see really uh, the impact uh, or, or which businesses should worry about this impact from this IoT expansion or IoT sort of evolution, uh, if, you can, if you can shed some light there. Yeah, I, I, I like to counsel people to think about the world as uh, enterprises that build machines. So build healthcare machines, build uh, agricultural machines, build construction, build power machines, right? And 
the guys that build those machines, so Boeing builds aircraft, are different than the guys that use machines. United Airlines, the guys that build gene sequencers like Illumina are different than the guys that use them. Uh, hospitals mm. like Children's Hospital, et cetera. So these are obviously related, but they're not the same. Mm. So first focusing on the enterprises that build machines, I go, well, what you're seeing today is they realize that in a lot of cases, if they can improve the quality of their service, they're building a better machine. Uh, combine harvesters are an interesting example of this. Um, people may not have thought about this, but if you're harvesting grain, you don't harvest all year long, right? There, mm. There's a window when the grain is ready, moisture levels, et cetera, where you go out and you harvest it. And so in that window, you want the machine to be available, right? And mm. so if I can now use technology, software, machine learning, connection, et cetera, to improve the quality of my machine to build a better combine harvester, right? It has big implications on the quality of my product to the guy who uses the machine, right? So a lot of people are, mm. are down this path. How can I improve the quality of service? Um, there's also how do I reduce the cost of the service, right? So um, uh, some of you may be aware of United Rentals. United Rentals rents construction equipment. There, mm. I think, just closed the year at $6.6 .6 billion in revenue. Uh, they rent, you know, forklifts, scissor lifts, et cetera. Um, if you go look, they actually spend a billion dollars a year in maintenance of that equipment, right? a mm. billion. Uh, if I can use technology, software, et cetera, to operate more precisely, right, rather than use the old, you know, oh, it's 3,000 miles, I'm going to, you know, change the oil, but rather change it when it's needed, uh, change it ahead of time. If I can just operate 10% better, 10% more precisely, um, that's $100 million. And $100 million, mm -hmm. it goes straight to the bottom line. So reducing the cost of service for guys is a huge motivator, I'll say, for why do you want to do this? But I, I've made the point that I think the machine of the future uh, is, is going to be a bunch of sensors, a bunch of actuators, mm. and a big computer in the middle. <laughs> and if you want to see a modern version of this, go pick up a Tesla, right? Uh, and this is why I think in the world of machines and a Tesla, people know this, right? Every couple of months you get a new feature in the Tesla, right? Well, that never happened in your Ford or your Porsche, right? I mean, nobody ever thought about that. Well, in the world of software, we go, of course this happens, right? You, you know exactly mm -hmm. how to go do this. Um, I actually uh, had the opportunity to do a talk to the 90 CTOs of the Tata group in India, right? If those who don't know, it's like, the, you know, the hugest company in India that <laughs> some people say that you can uh, be born, live and die and only use Tata products, right? right. Um, so <laughs> I did this talk. So you may be aware they own Jaguar Land Rover. So I, I said, oh, the machine of the future is a bunch of uh, you know sensors, a bunch of actuators and a big computer in the middle. So later in the day, the CTO Jaguar Land Rover got up and said, oh, yeah, Tim said, you know, future machines. Sensors, actuators, big computer, you know. He goes, I only wish it were that way. <laughs> goes, I have 18 different computer systems in there and none of them talk to each other, right? Uh, so, yeah, the vision is there, I think. Mm. And I have said to people, well, if you comprehend that the machines of the future are increasingly software, then the move to business models, which 
echo the business models in the world of software are upon us. Um, GE is very interested in this area as a machine manufacturer because they generate 50% of their revenue as a service business, right? And I will mm. say most companies out there generate, I was just spending time with a construction equipment company. Um, they operate in a 97.3 model, meaning 97% of their revenue is selling them a product and 3% is service, right? So every year they have to go sell again the same amount they sold last year just to stay even, right? So the ability to move to the first business model of starting to sell service, starting to sell digital service products, I think some are way ahead of others, um, but that is part of their future. They will ultimately connect and some of the companies out there are much further along in this in connecting their machines. And if they can connect the machines, they can offer more personal and more relevant service. Um, I've built business models that suggest if I only charge 1% a month to, of the purchase price of the product, I could double my revenues, quadruple my margins, mm -hmm. right, by doing that, by delivering product plus a connected service. And finally, if I can do that uh, and tell people how to manage their security, their availability, their performance, I can ultimately now do it for them and deliver the product as a service. We're obviously seeing the early signs of that uh, in the world of automobiles where people are very focused on uh, eliminating the fundamental cost in delivering a car as a service, which is the human labor. By the way, to make the point, that's the fundamental cost in delivering compute as a service, delivering mm. software as a service versus the, you know, the old way of me being an IT company, you know, or an IT organization. I have human labor managing the performance, availability, and security of the software, of the hardware. If I quote, hand that over to the guy delivering the product as a service, he is not doing it with human labor. They are doing it with automation standardization, et cetera. Same thing I believe is gonna happen in the world of, of machines. So that that is, I think, the thrust of the future for guys that make machines and why should they care, right? Let's flip over to why should enterprises that use machines care, right? Mm. Go, okay, I'm gonna give you four fundamental reasons. The first one is it can lower their consumables cost. Um, I think, most people are probably aware of this, that the operating margins of an airline are directly related to the consumables cost, meaning the cost of jet fuel, right? Mm. If they can operate more precisely, they can deliver higher operating margins, right? So there are businesses out there where the consumables costs dominate their operating margins. And so if I can operate, as I said, more precisely with my airplanes, et cetera, I can drive higher margins in my business. The one people probably are not aware of is the gene sequencing. Um, the so-called $1,000 gene sequence, $767 worth of that gene sequence is consumables, it's chemicals. And so if mm. I can operate more precisely, I can reduce the cost of gene sequencing, you know, therefore making it available way, way more people, et cetera. So I'm gonna lower my consumables cost could derive you know, benefits 
to people who use machines. If I use these, I call them precision machines, I can deliver a higher quality service. So there's a little story mm -hmm. about um, Duke Energy. So Duke, as some people know, is one of the largest or the largest energy uh, mm -hmm. electricity company in the United States. Uh, they uh, have installed a group of machines called synchrophasers out there. Synchrophasers uh, for the non double E's out there measure phase angle uh, on at different points in the grid. Um, mm. By the way, measure them 60 times per second. Uh, so why do they do this? Because if they can aggregate the data, collect the data from these machines, uh, they can use it to predict blackouts, brownouts, mm. and therefore produce a higher quality service. Right, as a user of these machines, I can produce better quality products. So if you look at agricultural or farming, um, yes, a farmer who uses less pesticides, less herbicides, et cetera, is using less consumables. So that's better operating margin for his business or her business. But by the way, if I'm using less herbicides and less pesticides, I'm creating a better product, a healthier mm. product, right? So again, why do I want to use, you know, precision machines to improve, in this case, improve the quality or the health of the product? And the last one I'll say is uh, I can improve the safety, right? Um, mm. but most people may have never thought about this, but the number one reason why computer systems fail is not hardware, it's not software. It's humans, it's us, it's mm. people, right? We're the number one reason. Um, so if I can automate, if I can take the humans out of the loop, right, I can produce safer systems. And clearly we know examples in, you know, in trains, et cetera, where it's quite obvious the problem was not the machines, it was the humans. So if mm -hmm. I'm operating more precisely, right, I can improve the overall safety. So I think those are all the, you know, reasons why people that, that you know, build machines should care about the Internet of Things as well as all the people who use machines should care about the Internet of Things. Interesting. So, um, and by the way, thank you so much for, for walking us through. Uh, and it's actually, it's it's a very exhaustive. Uh, uh, and thank you. I do appreciate you sort of sharing an insight and it's really, really, really useful. So what I wonder, like, so we are hearing a lot about machine learning and we'll, we're hearing a lot about artificial intelligence sort of uh, getting are uh, impacting almost every asset every facets of, of technology today what is happening uh for the ai uh, in, in 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 terms of the world of iot like how it's it's getting getting shipped or impacted uh in in the world of iot yeah great question i think you know i as i said i do a lot of public speaking out there and i i tell people i think everybody whether you're in iot or not iot you need to get smarter about what's going on here um mm we are seeing this on the consumer side in a meteoric way. Um, mm. You know, if, if any of you have not used Google translate lately, go check it mm. out. I mean, it's amazingly better mm. than a year ago. Uh, obviously Alexa, Siri are things that we get to see right now. Um, and, you know, speech recognition, you know, people didn't think a computer could beat a human in go for 10 more years. And it happened two years ago. Right. So the thing I'm, I like to get the business leaders and technology people should be thinking about this too is why is this happening? Why is this happening so rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when we've all been talking about AI for a lot of years, right? 
So um, the example that I like to show how fast this is happening is um, the ImageNet competition. So mm. the ImageNet competition was started in 2011. So what is this, seven, six years, seven years ago? Not very long ago. Uh, to, uh, it's a competition between computers and humans as to who could recognize images better, right? So when they started this whole thing out, um, the humans uh, were 5% incorrect, right? 95% mm. accuracy. They could identify the, the image. Uh, computers were only 75% accurate, right? They weren't very good, right? Humans were mm. way better. Uh, by 2015, which is, you know, four years later from the start of the competition, the computers were 97% accurate. They were actually better than the humans, mm. right? So, and you, so, well, yeah, they, they don't do the competition anymore, right? <laughs> so, so, so I go, why is that? What happened here, right? What, 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 it just, this is meteoric, right? Um, right. So there are three fundamental things that are occurring right now. One is um, we now have a ton of compute available for no money. Um, mm. I made the point, um, I, I started a class in cloud computing at Chihuahua University now, about eight, nine years ago. I, I showed up, uh, my friends at Amazon said, here's $3,000 worth of computer time. Mm. I said to the students, well, that'll buy you a computer in Northern California, Virginia, uh, or, or Ireland for three and a half years. Mm. Um, they all looked at me like, so what, right? I could have a computer mm. in Beijing for three and a half years. I said, or... It'll buy you 10,000 computers for 30 minutes. Uh, mm. This is eight years ago. I mean, you know, we could do mm. math over again. Mm. Suffice it to say that $3,000 can buy you a ton of computers, right, at this mm. stage of the game. So the economics of cloud computing are, are the number one, right? That's, that's been going on the past seven, eight years, and the change has been dramatic in our ability to get a lot of compute horsepower for no money. Number two... These algorithms, these neural network algorithms, which, by the way, have been around for quite some time, right, um, mm. are now showing up all over the place. You know, TensorFlow is a great example of this, mm. right? So my ability to take neural network technology and deploy it, uh, not as a, you know, single node for those people who've never thought about it. A neural network is trying to emulate how, the, how people think our neurons work. So a neuron has a bunch of inputs. Um, uh, there's a weighting function that can be attached to all the inputs. Uh, we multiply all together, sum up uh, the answer to those uh, weighting functions times the inputs. And then mm. depending on what the, quote, activation function is, uh, we fire the neuron. So this concept that these neurons now can be placed uh, in multiple layers uh, which people refer to as deep learning, we now have the computational horsepower to go do the learning part of this, let's call it the learning part of this, um, in a dramatically better way uh, because we have the compute horsepower. So that's the algorithms are out there. Um, number two, number three, the data is starting to be out there. So um, um, there's actually a nice graph that... Uh, Jeff Dean at Google Brain uh, put together, which kind of expresses what is going on out there, which is with neural network technology versus all other approaches, 
there is a monotonically increasing degree of accuracy the more data I throw at it and the more compute I throw at it, right? Mm. Uh, so if you wonder, you know, why does face, Facebook facial recognition work so scary good, right? Mm. Well, <laughs> I don't know anybody else who has more faces in the world than Facebook, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the AlphaGo, they had one million AlphaGo, right, um, games uh, to study. So the ability now to put more data, more compute, right, against these algorithms, right, is driving increasing degrees of accuracy. And we are seeing this, as I said, whether that's in translation or speech recognition, et cetera. So you could ask, well, so, okay, that's cool. So what does this all have to do with the world of IoT? I go, well, uh, oh, before I, I go there, I, I want to make one last point. I know the guys who've been working in this area know this, but I do want to make a point for the people who don't know this, which is the life cycle of machine learning is not the same as a software development life cycle. A lot of us, including me, <laughs> yeah. well-schooled on software development life cycles, which are largely what I call deterministic. We mm. know that we, we want to move money from savings to checking, or we know we want to, you know, identify uh, the, you know, uh, what, how many uh, sales opportunities are there, et cetera. These are all deterministic things. Uh, but mm. the world of machine learning uh, slash AI slash neural networks is not a deterministic world. It's a probabilistic world. Uh, understanding things like false positives and false negatives, accuracy, sensitivity, trading those off is a, a very different process of building uh, these sorts of uh, applications and that has happened uh, historically in the world of software development. So if you're not a student of that, go get smarter about that and don't get trapped by thinking about this as the same way that we have thought about building software. So I made the comment, well, why do I, why do I care in the world of IoT about all this? That's great for machine translation. Well, I go, look, mm -hmm. if you look at speech data, right? What is speech data? Well, speech data is a ton of time series data. Well, guess mm -hmm. what? Machine data is a mm -hmm. crap load of time mm -hmm. series data, right? So is it not now possible to take right the same technologies that are being applied to you know speech image etc recognition and now apply it to the world of machines and the mm -hmm. answer i think is yes this is not going to work by trying to throw all that time series data into excel and, and write a report that's not going to work right it's not going to work that we you know bring it into our sql databases and try to write mm -hmm. bi you know, Cognos, pick on everybody, business objects, I don't care, right? That's just not going to be the way. You, you, what I like to say, look, I've got 500 sensors worth of data every second from 10,000 machines. What human could possibly, you know, visualize, determine, you know, what to do with that data? This is not, this is not possible, right? And so, uh, you know, I think the world, I'm, you know, working with a young uh, software company out here, some of my former students called Lacita, and we're basically mm -hmm. building deep learning networks to take, you know, time series based data coming from, you know, large scale machines and be able to learn on it, be able to learn, I like to say, learn from our machines, right, and ultimately create, you know, what I like to think of as precision assistance, assistance mm. that based on what they learn from the machines tell people, well, you know, it's time to change the rotor 
uh, in your wind turbine, or it's time to increase the boost on your uh, turbocharger or whatever, right? Based on learning from our machines. And uh, I think we're still in the very early stages of this, but if the, what we have seen happen in the world of consumer AI uh, starts to happen here, I think the changes could be dramatic in a very short period of time. So all of you out there who work in this area, keep working at it. <laughs> Interesting. There's one more thing that I wanted to ask you. So you have been observing um, like IoT industries for quite some quite some time. Like, what are some of some of innovative startups that that you have seen emerging in IoT that you're seeing today? If you can walk us through some of the interesting use cases and some of the interesting technologies that are yeah, that are happening well, in IoT just, space. You know, let me just touch on. And by no means is this complete. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff happening at this stage. I I'm actually I may mention I uh, became the chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator. But, focused just on IoT. Uh, Alchemist is uh, probably one of the leading enterprise software accelerators out there. Um, you know, we like to think of ourselves as the Y Combinator uh, for enterprise. Um, so mm -hmm. if any of your listeners are interested, uh, please consider applying, right, to the Alchemist mm -hmm. Accelerator. Um, we've had some pretty innovative companies coming out of there. So let me just touch on some things I've, I've seen that are interesting. Um, I think, first of all, I made the comment that um, the machines are going to be coming much more software-defined, the, the thing level. I think there's going to need to be a new stack uh, built for things, not for people. Uh, there's a young company called Automaton. Uh, it's a bunch of what I call GE refugees that started <laughs> it up, um, who really are rethinking uh, the stack. Uh, I'll call it at the thing level or at the edge level. By the way, I think the edge is interesting because in the world of machines, um, whether I'm a hospital or a, uh, a farm or a, you know, steam or a utility, I have a lot of different ages of machines out there. Um, mm. Some of them are very modern and, you know, talk IP. Others of them have a serial cable connected to them. <laughs> uh, so, Edge computing is going to become very important, I think, because, you know, we're going to have to find a way to connect all these machines. Mm. Um, uh, I think we have the opportunity. I made the point that, you know, we could rethink security uh, on things. Um, things are not going to be, you know, changing their passwords every two months mm. and, you know, adding an exclamation point. Uh, you know, it's so all that IOP technology. I think we need to rethink for the world of things. I'm working with a young company called Unique ID, basically leveraging blockchain technologies to be able to do this, to be able to build a authentication uh, IAM system that's much lower cost and much more secure for things. Right? Um, talk a little about connection. Um, actually, Friday, I'm having the second meeting of this. Uh, we have a project ongoing right now to connect the half a million healthcare machines in all the children's hospitals around the world. Very You'd be nice. astonished at this point in time how primitive it is. Mm, We're true. still sending CD-ROMs around the world. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, um, I think uh, is going to be interesting to be able to do this, um, make a point. The consumer internet that we're all aware of, when it hit a million machines is about when Netscape, eBay, 
all this stuff started to happen. Um, and because if you think about it, if it was a 10,000 machines, nobody would care. So mm. it's interesting, a half a million machines, very interesting inflection point. Uh, we're talking about as a vertical internet, uh, looking at using 5G technologies to do this in a private cellular network connected uh, through a backbone and um, again, engineering it for security from the very beginning uh, on an end-to-end -end basis. So in the connection world, uh, I'm um, working young company. I'm an executive chairman for Lacita, uh, a bunch of my former Stanford students basically taking AI technologies um, that have been used in the consumer internet and applying it now to learning from our things, uh, redefining a whole new collection architecture that is uh, uniquely tuned to uh, building these kinds of learning applications. Um, I think, again, we have the opportunity to go do this uh, for the first time. Um, uh, finally, on the do side, you know, the application side, um, young company out there called Umnitsa. Umnitsa has uh, made a name for itself, basically managing smart laptops and smart uh, cell phones for a lot of, uh, you know, famous consumer companies. Pinterest is an interesting example of that. Mm -hmm. If you start thinking about the fact that, you know, I made the point, the more our things become smarter, the more why is it any different to manage a smartphone uh, than to manage a smart MRI scanner or a smart um, uh, tractor, et cetera. So the Nets, I think, is uh, at least has an opportunity to redefine what enterprise, I like to call it enterprise thing management might be. Uh, finally, um, you know, um, this is all going to require more people to learn about mm. all of this. Um, I think branding has been a phrase used largely on the consumer side and largely kind of way after the fact. Uh, but I think the opportunity exists right now, whether I'm a young company or I'm building a new digital service product inside an existing company to start to tell your story, tell the story in a mobile enabled way, um, tell the story using the modern internet technologies uh, to broadcast those stories, to publish those stories. And so there's a young startup out there called Precision Story uh, who's doing this. Um, and I, I think it's gonna be important for everybody in the enterprise to start moving to you know, vastly better ways of getting our stories out there. So just a little bit of a highlights of a couple things at least I've been working in and interested in, but I think there's tons of opportunity out there because as I've said before, the internet of people is not the internet of things. So um, <laughs> things are not people, then we gotta have new software to go do this. Interesting, interesting. I think that's that's fabulous. So, um, if if uh, I so one thing I also I want to know from you is like what are the KPIs nowadays that um, that if if I am an IoT uh, either professional or if I am an IoT company, what are some of the some of the leading uh, sort of KPIs that that I need to monitor? Like I know it's it's very business specific in many instances, but there are like. From your your observation, are you seeing like some common KPIs that um, successful startups or successful companies uh, do monitor uh, in their IoT journey? Like, do, do you have any thoughts on those? Well, I think you know, as a young startup, probably the only successful KPI is called revenue. 
you know, whether I'm, you know, building software for things or collecting data or whatever, each one of these, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's customers, revenue, growth rate are all important uh, KPIs uh, that they need to be thinking about. They need to track. Um, I think on the on the machine side, the guys that make machines, uh, what I've been telling them to do is I go, look, you need to start breaking your revenue into product and service. And, you know, what is your product service mix? Uh, what is the margin on your service business? I know you know the margin on your product business, but what are the margins on your service business? You know, how are you going to improve the margins on that? Are you still operating in a break fix, you know, world, mm. in which case it's probably, you know, guys with wrenches. Mm. Uh, okay, fine. You know, that's not going to have very high margin to it. So I think, you know, those guys, KPIs are really just, you know, service business. How how much service business do I have? How much of that service is information delivery, right? Mm. And therefore, what are the margins going to be on that? Um, I think those are really the big ones, right? I think uh, that's interesting. So I, I think so. We we discussed about um, so the bullish part in IoT, right? So mm -hmm. what what is happening in the world of IoT? What are some of the interesting things? Do you have a perspective on some of the bearish things? Some of the things that uh, that are like either like do you have any any thoughts on those? Like what what is yeah, really I'll, slow? I'll do the bearish with you, and then I just realized it's my time. It's twelve twenty, and I'm supposed to be at a twelve thirty lunch. <laughs> I better get my butt moving. Um, oh, yeah. Bearish. Uh, I think it's uh, the bearish is adoption. It's adoption. It's the rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, people have asked me, uh, is adoption going to be faster in power versus uh, water versus construction versus healthcare? I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer mm. that question. Uh, mm. I already made the point that, uh, that, you know, we do operate in the physical world in all of this, right? This is not uh, financial services operates in a virtual world. By and large, it does not operate in a physical world. So mm. it's much easier for transition to happen in financial services than it is in the, in the physical world. So this will slow adoption. Um, and so the bet that I make, um, either as a maker of machines or the bet I make as a young startup or you know, a existing company investing in this area is, well, timing. It's a timing mm -hmm. question. And I think you could be bearish and go, it's gonna take way longer than we think. Um, and you, know, you might be right. I'm not saying, you know, I just made the comment. It's because of the relationship to the physical world. The flip side of it, and I don't want to use car too much, but mm -hmm. look at what's happening in cars. Mm. I mean, think about, I mean, just go back, you know, five years ago, and people thought that was the most, you know, buttoned down, we got it all covered, you know, world. Mm. And it's just getting rocked. Mm. Um, and so I don't know. I think that's... The, the bearish, the cautionary tale, which is as an investor you are cautious of, is timing. And, uh, mm. But I think being in the market, you know, being in the market and being ready to move, it, it's not a, I don't feel like it's something people want to wait on. You know, is it time to put in, you know, hundreds of millions? Maybe in some cases, maybe not. I, that, I think, is case by case. You know, it's going to be, and I counsel people to think about the things themselves. 
the connection technologies, the learning technologies, the application technology, these are all going to operate in different ways. Most of the investment, by the way, up until now, has largely been in the connection side. That's where most of the investments occurred. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. I think so the other areas are right, right? Okay. So, um, um, that's that's fabulous. And and by the way, uh, Tim, thank you so much for for really uh, giving us uh, giving us your time. And I'm having a ball with this, and that's why I think it's it's very difficult for me to let it go. It's uh, like you have been providing so much of interesting insights. Um, and I just want to take it all in this one fun ginormous session. So uh, we're almost at the tail end of the conversation. So I have like few more, and then 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 uh, we can call it off. Um, so one thing that I, I I do want your perspective on is um, how much of the IoT and cloud are married together nowadays? Like how much of IoT and cloud is 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 like are you like from your perspective? It's it's too much cloud uh, or like is 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 that the black backbone of of enabling an IoT uh, or you're seeing some like what what are your thoughts on those? Uh, you know I think. Um... Well, and we're, we're talking about cloud, meaning compute and storage cloud services. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I think this is why it's a perfect marriage. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not a big believer in the whole conversation about moving existing stuff. This mm -hmm. is not what happened in the world of client server. We didn't move a bunch of AS400 applications, you know, or said a different way, anybody who tried that failed miserably. What, what, is, what is really going to accelerate use is totally new apps things we've never done before. And that's why I look at the whole IoT space as nobody's got anything over here. We, you know, we don't, as software companies, we really don't spend a lot of time talking to guys in mining, agriculture, construction, et cetera. Mm. And so I think there's enormous greenfield opportunities over there and it will all be built on top of the cloud. There's just no, why would you do anything else, right? And that's why I think the two are a perfect marriage. A greenfield set of application opportunities combined with a new technology base that has different economics to it, you know, different capabilities. Interesting. Versus just move stuff. Yeah. Nice, nice. Right. So, so let's. I think. So, I want to uh, bring a focus slightly on you. Like, if if in your journey, yeah. what has been a uh, an ingredient to your success so far? If you can share, share, uh, put a, put a quick thought on that. Well, I don't know. An ingredient success is, I think, a little bit of you know hard work, uh, curiosity, um, luck. I mean, everybody will tell you luck plays an enormous role in all this, right? So, uh, but one that I keep pushing on is you know people should be curious. I mean, be curious about what's next. Be curious. Be a student of the future, um, and I think the opportunities will open up for you. You've got a little lecture. I I give to my Stanford kids, you know, the new world is 10 year cycles, two to learn, eight to execute and redo again. You know, nice. sitting in place is nowhere to be anymore. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's fabulous. So I, I, we ask almost every of our visitor uh, uh, about their favorite read. If you can, if you can share your favorite with that, with, read with our audience. Well, I was going to tell you, there's actually two. So one I, um, I just started is uh, it's, called Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. Um, it's, mm -hmm. pretty fun. it's a pretty fun read, uh, clearly all about the world of artificial intelligence. The one, um, I, in fact, I just had lunch with my old friend, Jeff Moore, 
And uh, I had not read Zone to Win, shame on me, but uh, it's a very, uh, uh, very short book. But anybody into the interesting questions of transformation and incubation inside companies, he has a great model in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, it's a really fast read. Pick it up, read it. Awesome, awesome. So that brings us to our, our end of conversation. And, and Tim, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, before we go, I want your parting thought for our audience. Do you have, do you have any, any thought for, our, for, for our, our viewers or our listeners? Well, keep listening to you. How about that? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> couldn't agree more. I think that's... Uh, and, and Tim, thank you so much uh, for being so generous with your time. And good luck. You're always welcome on the show to okay. share anything exciting. And thank you so much for the time. Hey, you're welcome. Have, Have a, a good, good rest one. of your day. Yeah. yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it And I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this